Well, hopefully inside your uh, service outlines there was a sermon outline uh, in there which is worth having open as we go through uh, Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7 and I'm pretty sure it was page 1, 2, 3, 4. I'm hopeless at remembering but that one was pretty easy. Page 1, 2, 3, 4 of the church Bibles. It's worth having that open as well. Revelation chapter 2. Well, tonight is the third week in a series looking at the early chapters of the letter of Revelation. A letter that we've already seen in chapter 1 is of an enormous encouragement uh, to the Christians it was directly written to. A group of Christians under the pump in this world facing enormous pressure to give in, enormous pressure to pack it in as a church, to pack it in as individual Christians Uh, by a world around them that was very anti-God and anti-Jesus. Already we've seen in chapter 1 this huge, beautiful revelation of our mighty Lord Jesus. It's it's a breathtaking picture in chapter 1 and if you you were away in the recent weeks, it's well worth this week going back to chapter 1 and once again catching a glimpse of the picture it gives us of Jesus, the mighty King, ruler of the universe, ruling powerfully, and universally. It's a big picture of a big God. And then tonight, as we turn our attention to chapter 2, we see what I think is a fairly major shift in focus. I was trying to sort of um, uh, get a picture in my head of the sort of shift that's taking place here. And the only thing I could think of was uh, in recent weeks, uh, when we first arrived here, for a couple of weeks I was driving around in a manual. Now, Australians don't really drive manual cars at all. And uh, to be honest, the first week was a fairly interesting experience for anybody within 100 metres of my car on the roads. Uh, Numerous points I went from fifth gear to first gear in quick succession. That's the sort of thing that's happening here. We have this high-speed, dramatic picture of Jesus in chapter 1 and all of a sudden it's pulled back, or so it seems. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 1. We've gone from this huge picture of Jesus all the way down to the minute details of a series of local congregations scattered throughout the area of Asia Minor. And if you've been following the letter, hopefully you'll feel this shift as we go through it. We've moved from a picture of the centrepiece of history, Jesus Christ, the centrepiece of meaning and truth. We've moved from that right down to the local a local meeting, a local congregation. It's as if we've gone from the throne room of heaven to the office in Christchurch Fullwood. If you imagine that sort of transformation, now I'm not sure, I've only been to the office of Christchurch Fullwood a few times, it's a little different to the throne room of heaven. That's the sort of change we're taking place, a huge picture down to the minute detail of individual lives. What's going on? It's a fascinating shift. And I guess what I want us to see in these first seven verses is what do the two have to do with each other? What does this massive picture of Jesus that we've seen in recent weeks have to do with the local congregation as we'll see tonight in Ephesus and have to do with us tonight sitting here in this room? What does the throne room of heaven have to do with this room here? That's what we're going to look at tonight. So as I said, have Revelation chapter 2 open as we look at it. As we begin to explore, let me ask you a question. If we as a church decided that we needed to sort of think about how we could be more effective, uh, have more impact in Forward, in Sheffield, in the north, and we decided to have a big think tank, get together, write a big list of all the ways we could be even more effective 
than we are now. We got a giant whiteboard out and we started writing them all down. What would we put on that list? What would make us a more effective church? Or what if rather than that we sort of thought maybe it's best to have fresh eyes and we got an independent sort of auditor to come in who would sort of observe us at practice and then tell us what they thought? Or what if rather than ourselves or rather than some independent third party, God was the auditor? What would he make of our church, of Christ Church forward? Well, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we have a pretty similar process going on. We're given a window into the life of seven different churches in Asia Minor and we see them being put under God's microscope. And within it, I think we can see our own church see ourselves, our priorities, our context and see what God makes of all of it. And tonight we're going to spend a a little bit of time in just seven verses, the first seven verses that were read out for us earlier by Cynthia. And at first glance, if you look at uh, Revelations 2 and 3, they look like one, uh, a series of uh, independent letters, not connected. There's a letter to Ephesus, there's a letter to this church, that church and somehow we're given a sneak peek into these letters But if you look closer and in context, you see that the the sum of these letters form one coherent whole. Christ the Lord was speaking to his church throughout Asia Minor and in fact, as we see, his church throughout the world. Each church was to learn from God's word to the others and I suggest we here tonight are to be taught by these words written to Ephesus. So with that in mind, let's zoom in on this first instalment, words spoken directly to the Ephesians, one of the great cities of the ancient world, in fact the largest in the Asia Minor area, to this great city and to the church within her gates come these words and have a look in verse 1 whose words they are. This verse tells us two huge things about the one who is about to speak to this church. First, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The very churches to which Jesus speaks are in his grip. The word he used for his hold on them is a strong one. It's not like it's a tentative grip. At any point they could fall out. No, he has them tightly in his fist. He is not going to let go. He has complete control and authority. And as we've seen in recent weeks, these seven churches are really a symbol of the complete church of God. Every church of which Christ is Lord is in his hand, held tightly. Secondly, he is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Christ is intimately involved with these churches, intimately involved with our church. It's a great image, isn't it, of Jesus walking through amidst his church. For me it brings back the picture of Genesis 2 of God walking through the garden in the cool of the day seeking relationship, seeking fellowship with his people. That's the sort of fellowship he seeks here with his people in Ephesus and with his church throughout the world. But more than this, the second image of Jesus, the speaker of these words, tells us that he is completely aware of their situation. He's not distant. He's not far off, unaware of what they're going through. No, he walks with them. He walks among them. And even more than that, it tells us that he is active. He is not standing at a distance. He walks with his churches. Our God 
is on the move. It's a huge verse, isn't it? Just one verse tells us so much about our God and so much about our church. Here as we pick up uh, parts of this mind-blowingly beautiful revelation of Jesus we saw in chapter 1, as we see this glorious risen Jesus, we see how totally relevant he is to the local meeting, the local congregation, how involved he is with it and well might he be involved even at a local level. Do you see how he describes the churches in this verse as he did in chapter 1? The churches and their leaders are described as stars and lampstands. I was struck by that this week. Do you see the commonality between them? Do you see what the passage is trying to tell us? Stars, as we usually see, scattered throughout a dark night sky. Lamps usually placed around a darkened room. If you know your Bible and if you know the writer of Revelation, John, his Gospel, you will know how he has declared Jesus to be the very light of the world. John 8, Jesus declares himself to be so, a light that has burst into the darkness of this world to bring life to a dying human race. Jesus is described in Revelation 1 as like the sun shining in all its brilliance. I was reading that this week and I was trying to imagine uh, that might be a fairly foreign concept uh, here, sun and shining in the same (laughs) sentence. So uh, I'm happy to talk to you a bit later about what it looks like to have the sun shining in all its brilliance. But Jesus is the very light of the world again and again. This passage makes that clear and the whole of the Gospel of John makes it clear. And now he has shed that light abroad in his church of which he is Lord like stars scattered throughout Asia Minor, like lampstands scattered in a darkened room. Well might he be intimately involved with them. He wants them to fulfil their station, to fulfil their job to be stars and lamps in this world and not let that light fade. And so this one who speaks to these churches, who alone has brought this light into the world, who alone upholds it, rules them, examines them, dwells with them, he is indeed a worthy auditor of our church, isn't he? Well, having seen who he is and who he has made us, let's turn now to his assessment of the Ephesian church, verses 2 and 3. I know your works, he says, and there is much in their works to be commended. Do you see it there? I know your hard work, your toil. A Greek word here for the work they're doing is troubling work, exerting work. Every fibre of their being has been poured out for Jesus. He knows how hard they've worked. He knows their patient endurance. They have suffered long for him. It's hard work shining as a star in Ephesus. Ephesus was hard soil. Have a look at Acts 19 when you have time. See the mob there, the account of the silversmith. It was a powerful city, a city that was anti-God, anti-Jesus, wanted nothing to do with him. But in this environment, they had worked hard, suffered long, so much so that the praise is repeated again in verse 3. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I love that last phrase. Imagine hearing that from God. You have not grown weary. I know you've worked hard. I know it's been tough, hard conditions. 
And I know you didn't give up, he says to this church. I've only been here a few weeks and already I've come across a good number of people from this church whom I'm sure God would say that of, that you have not grown weary in your labour for him. I've met staff members who I'm starting to get to know that it's clear to me who have been at full throttle for the king for a long time. And I've met many, many people from this congregation and others who are also labouring hard for the Lord. There are rosters for everything here. Home groups to be led, meals to be cooked, sheets to be folded, rooms to be set up, packed up again, music to be prepared, kids to be taught. The list is endless. And to be honest, modern day England, modern day Sheffield is no more hospitable than Ephesus when it comes to the gospel of Jesus. Well, if this is you, know that your master, the risen Lord Jesus, who holds you and those around you in his right hand, who walks among this church, is well pleased with you, his servant. And know, as 1 Corinthians 15:58 says, that your work in the Lord is not in vain. The commendation for the Ephesian church though goes on even further than this. You see it there in verse 2. More than just holding on, they've been on the front foot. Jesus praises them for intolerance. It's a novel concept, isn't it, in the 21st century to be praised for intolerance. But he commends them for their willingness to test things, to show things up as evil, to show up lies for what they are and liars for who they are. They haven't stood still. They've sought these things out. They've discovered them. They've tested them. Paul had warned the Ephesian church that this would come, these dangers would come. Savage wolves aiming to rip apart their church. And I think when a danger like that comes to a church, you have two choices. You can sit still, close ranks and hope for the best or you can ante up and contend for the truth. And that is what they've done. They've searched out evil men among them. They've revealed them for what they are, shown them to be liars. You see an example of that in verse 6 with the teaching of the Nicolaitans, a group that sort of twisted the truth of the gospel a little bit, hoping to be a little bit more accessible, a little bit more relevant to the world around them, to, be, to have a few more doors open for them. A move that seemed so progressive, so emergent, and yet all it did was dim the light of the church. Turn out the light of the gospel and yes you do blend in with the world around you but it doesn't help you or them but not so the Ephesians. They had worked hard, they had suffered long and they had stayed true to their king. So there we have it. It's a pretty impressive report card isn't it? How do we stand up next to it? As a church? And as individuals in this church, I think it's easy to fall short. I read those verses and I thought, wow. I wouldn't mind just one of those things. I don't know whether you have, uh, I imagine you do, report cards uh, in your schools here. I remember uh, my report cards, bringing them home uh, to my parents, hoping that there was one golden comet that I could just sort of focus them in on that. And if they saw that one, then they'd be happy and all the rest would sort of just blend in. But there's just so many things that this church is doing right. How easy it is to grow weary. To get to the point in the various ministries we have where we go through the motions where we're just too tired to give it 
our full effort. Or maybe if, if we're part of a small group to get to the point where we just think we've got so much on, I just can't get there this week or maybe even next week. There's a few weeks where I'm just not going to be able to make it. And to convince ourselves that the only person who loses out when we do that is us. To grow weary in evangelism. I've been struck by that this week. I had great plans when I arrived in Fullwood that I would start to get to know uh, my neighbours and start to get to know the people uh, who are part of the, uh, the little village shops down there. Great plans. I still have those plans. I might find out that everybody who works in those shops is at this church, but that would be a good thing, an encouraging thing to find out. But already I've walked into the co-op and I've bought the product that I was after and I've walked straight out without the conversation. As I read this, I was re-sparked into action. We are not to grow weary of our labour in the Lord. How easy it is to keep silent and to tolerate that which God hates. Do you see why he commended them for what they've done with the Nicolaitans? Because he hates it. He hates when the truth of his gospel is twisted. So easy to sit silent as there's a casual denial of what is plainly revealed here. To keep silent as the light of the world is dimmed around us. Not so the Ephesians. To look upon this church is to see a congregation doing so much right And to such an extent. But there's a problem. And not a small one either. In fact, it's more of an earthquake. Have a look at verses 4 and 5. Yet I hold this against you, says Jesus. Strong words, words of grievance. Remember who brings that grievance. Despite all their hard work, they are the direct object of God's displeasure. I hold this against you, he says to them. Why? You have forsaken your first love. Or as Jeremiah 2, 2 puts the same thing, you have left the devotion of your youth, the love of your youth behind. Strong words. What's Jesus getting at? As I looked at it this week, many commentators have many different theories of what their first love is, that they've forsaken A lot of them go for the idea that it implies that they've lost their love of fellow Christians along the way. That in their vigilance that they've grown into a sort of a grim defensive Christianity that's big on truth but hollow to the core when it comes to heart. It's a horrible sight. And in the end this may be true of the Ephesians but I believe there's something more basic, more fundamentally wrong You see, those things are just symptoms of a deeper problem. The answer for the Ephesians wasn't stopping what they were doing right. The answer is in the remedy that God offers them in this passage. Three words. Remember, repent, do. You see, at the heart of the problem for the Ephesians was a memory issue. They'd forgotten their God. Who he was what he had done and the shape of life that came from that. You see, their first love was not themselves nor even the people around them. Their first and great love was God. Think for a minute. Where does love for God begin? Is it not in seeing him, seeing what he has done for us, his immense love? And where does forsaking that love begin? 
Is it not in forgetting what he has done and how much he loves us? Ephesus was an effective church. They had so much right. They were doing so much so well but they'd moved on, grown up. Heed the warning given to this church. A warning, as I said earlier, that echoes in Jeremiah 2 where God chided the Israelites about the same thing. They had lost their devotion for him. They had lost their dependence on him, their wonder before their God. No awe is left before me, says God in Jeremiah 2.19. They had left behind their lover, the glorious, beautiful, risen King Jesus, the bridegroom, as he is described in Revelation, and had busied themselves with toil, with work. Ephesus was so hard-working, so enduring, so vigilant, but dependent? No. Devoted to Jesus? No. In love? No, that's the foolish whim of youth. They'd moved on. They'd forgotten. It's easy to do, isn't it? To get so concerned with ministry, with, with getting it right, with being effective that we forget, as they forgot, just who it is we serve just how much he loves us and how utterly dependent we are on him. Well, if that's what you're starting to do and it's so easy to do, hear how this last great book of the Bible describes our first love. Hear how Jesus is described. He who holds the seven stars and walks among them. He who has the sharp double-edged sword the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the one whose blood purchased men for God, who is worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honour, glory and praise, King of kings, Lord of lords, the one whose reward is within the Alpha and the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning and end, the bright morning star, the one who is coming soon. He is our strength, our start point, our end point. The Ephesians, having lost sight of their God and having left behind their first love, are called upon to repent, called upon to do the things they did at first, recapture what you had at first, says God. And for me, this is no better captured what this would be like than in in the psalm we had read out to us, Psalm 116. Let me read the first two verses again. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. For me, the picture there is of someone who has been rescued out of, a, out of an ocean, out of a sea, yanked out of it by God, standing on the shore, scratching their head, can't believe how blessed they have been, how how amazing the rescue has been and they never leave that spot. They never leave that feeling. That is what God is calling Ephesus back to. And in the final verse, verse 7, he calls them to listen to him. That's the way back for them. Hear what God is saying to his churches and to all here who have ears, let us hear. Hear his call to overcome. Do you see it there in verse 7? Who is the one that overcomes? The one who is faithful. Again, it's a call to dependence, isn't it? 
The one who overcomes is the one who remembers his first love, not a love of service or duty or even other people, but a love of the king. Finally, it is a call to realise what we are in on as Christians. You see the promise given to those who overcome? Verse 7, He who overcomes will have the right to eat from the tree of life. The tree that was a centrepiece of God's very good garden in Genesis 2, a tree that is part of the hope of the new garden, the new city that God is preparing even now. It is his gift for those who love him. And as he shouts out at the end of this book of Revelation, I am making all things new. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. For me, the great power of this book is it takes the big picture reality of who Jesus is, his great work of salvation, and it brings that reality right down, right down to our local church, to Ephesus, to forward, even to our homes. And it says, remember, in all the busyness of your life, in all the busyness of life in this church, remember your first love, who says to you, I am about to call every single one who has overcome to my banqueting table, to the great feast of tree of life fruit that I am laying out even now. Remember, in the words of Psalm 116, remember you were in desperate trouble. The noose was around your neck. You were very much afraid and very much powerless. You cried out, I heard you, do you remember? I rescued you at great cost. Because of my great love, I myself bore your sins in my body on the tree so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. By my death on a tree, the tree of life and its fruit are now laid out before you. Don't forget. A wise man once said, it is the curse of man that he forgets. I think if you're like me, you'll forget a lot of things as you go through life. You'll forget faces and places and information. In my case, I will forget a whole lot of names that I will hear in the coming weeks. I apologise in advance for that. You may even forget the dreams you have, the plans you have for how your life is going to go. Or maybe even the plans we have for how this church will go in the future. We may forget all of that. But forget him whom you have believed. Forget him who has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Forget him who is, who was and is to come. And we may as well pack up our plans, turn off the lights and shut the doors because we have forsaken our first love. My favourite verse in the whole Bible is in Paul's last letter to Timothy. Here at the end of what was a colossal ministry, at the end of a life that will be cut short at the hands of this world, comes a simple sentence that sums up the burning heart of his ministry. 2 Timothy 2.8 Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. May it be ours as well. Let's pray.